Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Zechariah, the ninth chapter. We finished the messages that we had. We had a from the chapter seven through uh, eight. We had a message of rebuke in chapter seven, and also a message of restoration, chapter eight, and a message of remembrance, chapter eight, and a message of promise, chapter eight. We come to chapter nine, and we come across two burdens. Two burdens. And they're marked by chapter 9, verse 1, and it carries us through 11, 14. And then the second burden is chapter 12, verse 1. Notice as you look at chapter 9, verse 1, it says the burden of the word of the Lord. That's the first one. And then chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord. So you can mark these two, and there will be subdivisions as we progress. But it's easy sometimes to get a division in your mind of what's going on. So these two burdens cover chapters 9 through chapter 12. But the first one begins in chapter 9, verse 1. And actually it's titled, The Burden on the City Surrounding Palestine. The Burden on the City Surrounding Palestine. And then when you get to chapter 12, verse 1, it's the burden or siege of Jerusalem. So these are the main two titles. But under this first one, you're going to have another division. Zechariah 9, verse 9, you'll have the appearance of Israel's Messiah. And then under this first burden, also you're going to have in chapter 11, turn over 11, verse 7, you're going to have the rejection of the Messiah. So under this first division that we're talking about, and I'm carrying you a little bit fast, but you have the appearance of the Messiah in 9 verse 9, and we'll get to that probably in our message this night. And then when you turn over to 11 verse 7, you'll have the rejection of the Messiah. The appearance of the Messiah and the rejection of the Messiah. Then when we get to that one on chapter 12, we'll give you the division there. It's a little too much to comprehend in the first lesson. So we'll pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, and see these two burdens that we've spoken of. And remember, it begins with the burden on the city surrounding Palestine. And we'll read verse 1. 9, verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man as, as of all tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And uh, he's going to tell us in the next verses how the, the burden here is really the wrath of the Lord against these cities. Remember when we studied the book of Amos and we gave you the judgment of God upon the cities of uh, the heathen nations round about Israel and Judah. And there were six nations that judgment was pronounced upon in the book of Amos. You remember studying those? And uh, each one of the times that Amos would cite one of these that judgment would fall upon, he would use this refrain all the way through, or this phrase, he said, for three transgressions, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he used this same phrase, I guess you would call it, every, on every one of these six heathen nations round about, and some of these Zechariah's covering right here, Gaza and Syria and so on. 
and Philistia. He used these six times over to show his judgment upon these heathen nations. And then he turns to Judah and Israel. And he says the same thing. For three transgressions of Judah, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And then for three transgressions of Israel, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So in Amos' message, and his burden was that the judgment would be upon these six heathen nations, which much of it's covered here in Zechariah chapter 9. When we start seeing these cities and the ones it's talked about here, we'll see it's an overlap of much the same uh, area, or at least the same peoples that are in view. And back in uh, the book of Amos, he would say that six times over concerning the heathen nations, and he had addressed the heathen cities round about. They were distinguished by the cities that represent those countries, those people. And uh, the capital, usually, of the city would set them apart and call them, you know, what they are. When we think of even Damascus today, what do we think of? Syria. When we think of Baghdad, we think of what? Iraq. Uh, And, of course, uh, we're going to see that when we speak of Gaza, we'll know it's the land of the Philistine cities. And all these things are even familiar to our thoughts today. And many of these cities are familiar. But I just wanted to point out that God's judgment is pointed out here against all of these surrounding Palestine. Now, when we read verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus. Notice these two are joined together. This is the province of the Syrian kingdom, then in existence. It's called the land of Hadrach. And then it says, and Damascus. Well, we know very much today that we, when we associate, when we speak of Damascus, we think of, of Syria, do we not? In fact, there's been quite a bit on the news lately about that particular area since the war and uh, about uh, the uh, possibility of uh, some of the criminal aspect fleeing into Syria and getting... Uh, protection there, whether or not that's true, we don't know, but we know that a lot of it is uh, uh, probably so. But anyway, we find that this represents the province of the Syrian kingdom then in existence. So let's read it again. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be rest thereof, the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. They'll be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby, and Tyrus and Sidon, though it be very wise. We're going to find these other places addressed. Hamath is one that stands out. And Tyrus, in verse 3, And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold. And heaped up silver as dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Very wealthy. What did she do? Build herself a stronghold. It is said that there was a double wall around Tyrus in that day. 150 feet high. A wall of protection. A double wall. So it says, Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust. And fine gold as as the mire of the streets. My goodness, increased in wealth, had everything that they desired, and seemingly they thought they were well protected. 
But it doesn't make any difference how many walls that man may build as a protection against God's judgment. When God's judgment falls, he can knock down all the walls. He knocked down the walls of Jericho just by the shout of, of the people. And, he, and of course, uh, he used that to cause a great destruction in Joshua's day and brought down the, the walls. And they were double wide too, as well as that goes. And up on top, they had room on the top of the city walls for chariot races. They're so wide, they could just race around. And uh, there were houses upon the walls too in certain uh, places for protection. You remember, uh, Rahab's house was upon the wall. And they spoke of the fall of her house in place of a boat. But uh, notice here it says, And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as, as the mire of the streets. They had as much fine gold as the mire of the streets. Now then, verse 4 says, Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. This is exactly what happened when Alexander conquered her in historical records. He will smite. But God smites. He may use certain armies and men at his disposal. You know, God many times in the Old Testament would use heathen nations or ungodly people or the people that would rebel against himself and become more heathenish and more ungodly. He would even permit them, I would say his secondary will or his permissive will would be to bring judgment upon some that were cast out or cast down and and, uh, conquered. And here in this instance, he used Alexander to conquer Tyre, Tyrus, in his day. And it says, Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. So that judgment did fall. We're talking about the burden on these cities surrounding Palestine. So it doesn't make any difference how high the walls of protection that man may build. When God decides to bring judgment, remember the cities of the plain in uh, the days of uh, Abraham and Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, when God decided to destroy them, he didn't have to ask anybody about his power to do so. He had the power to do so, and he predicted that it would be done, and he brought it about. And history should tell us that when God determines judgment, it will fall. Later on, we read in the... Well, we read earlier in Daniel, of course, we're in the minor prophets now, but in the days of Belshazzar, you remember, that the handwriting came on the wall, and he says, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting, and said, In that very night... The king was slain, was turned over to the Medes and the Persians. They took possession. All right, let's look at this now in verse 5. Ascalon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it. Here's the Philistine cities. And be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ascalon shall not be inhabited. The Philistine cities would come under this judgment. In verse 6, and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Philistines. Uh, let's think of it this way. One foreigner or one stranger would dwell there in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride. You know, pride brings destruction. 
Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before fall. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth, and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. So, when all this happens, and it did happen historically, and we'll get to a part in a little bit down further that will turn to the future time that many things will happen. In verse 8, he says, And I will encamp about mine house, about his people, to protect the house of the Jews of Israel at that time, because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. We know that whatever deliverance and protection that they had in the past, that here is spoken of as the future, because he says here, And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with my eyes. So this would have to refer to the final days, because we know they're still oppressors, right? And have been through the ages, through the years. So when we think of the fact that the historical is mixed in with the prophetic future and shows us that God has determined that in the future these things will be true about His encamping round about and His uh, protection there will be in the future. When we think of God's protection, look in Psalm 34, verse 7. Psalm 34 and verse 7. Once you see what it says here, it says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Not only was his earthly people, chosen people of old, protected, but God's people, believers, are protected by the angel of the Lord. The believer is not only saved, but he is kept as well. And so Jesus himself seems to serve as an encircling garrison for those who fear him. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. We're told in the Kings where the one angel came and slew, what was it, 185,000 of the enemy? 185,000. One guardian angel, one angel of God. And when we think of the fact that Jesus said at one time, I could call 12 legions of angels. He could call them for his protection. Did you know 12 legions of angels? And you figure each one had power to smite 185,000 of the enemy. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that the Syrians in that day? I'll have to go back and check it. But anyway, it was the enemy of that day. Can you think of the fact that at any given time that would be enough power from heaven to destroy every man upon the face of this earth at any given time in our history and the population of the world. You multiply it out and see how much 185,000 is times 12 legions of angels. Get your calculator to do it. Don't try to do it like the old-fashioned way. But even, even if you did, you can come to the same conclusion. I mean, there would be more billions of people than, than we've ever had on the earth at any time. So, Jesus had plenty at His rescue, didn't He? He had plenty to call upon. In fact, after the temptation, if you'll remember, it says, And angels came and ministered unto Him. So they're present. And the Bible tells us that they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for the 
for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's Hebrews 1 verse 14. And in the earlier part of Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And uh, so, I believe that's maybe verse 6. Hebrews chapter 1. And let's see what it says. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse uh, verse uh, 7 it is. And, and of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So we can find that uh, they're ministering spirits. Also in verse 14, you look on down there, and you'll find they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister. For the heirs of salvation, that's you and I. Anyone says, do you have a guardian angel? We may have more than one because they're ministering spirits. We may have one, but that's enough. We don't have to worry about it if God is taking care of us, and He will. Have you seen yourself in times past come across something that would potentially be a great uh, accident or tragic situation in your life, and all of a sudden, you know, you're out, you're protected from it? I'm sure that many of us have almost been killed in an automobile accident had it not been for a guardian angel. I can recall several instances in my own life. I remember one time was going to uh, down to. Midland to preach a funeral and on the way to that funeral it almost was my own we got down to Artesia and just before we got into Artesia some crazy guy pulled right across in front of us and the, the car the car I, it sounded like he just ripped the whole side of the car off and it had to be the the wind or the air uh from that, that caused that sound because Louise and I thought the whole side of the car was gone. I pulled over to the road, side of the road after he'd gone on the side road and I looked and there wasn't a sign of anything wrong with that automobile. Nothing had hit it, but it sounded like it completely tore it off. And I, I thought we'd be missing the back door or the fender or no telling what because of the, the sound. And... Uh, I do believe that in that instance, we were traveling along probably 60, 65 miles an hour trying to get to that, that uh, funeral. I had a funeral to preach that morning. We'd started real early and try to get there in time. And I don't know what time it was. I think it was supposed to be at 10, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock that morning. But anyway, there's been many times that I've felt that God was protecting me and my family. And I'm sure some of you can cite many of the same experiences in your own lives. But notice what it says here in verse 8. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, and because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor, now here's the future aspect of it, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. So he's speaking of a time when they will never have an oppressor pass by them anymore. And of course, the national uh, uh, thought here is of Israel. Now then, look at verse 9. Verse 9 shows us the appearance of Israel's Messiah. And I'm sure we can identify this with chapters in uh, the New Testament. Uh, there's a Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 5, and John 12:15, And also in Mark's Gospel, we can find... Find it in the earlier part. But let's just get this and see what it says. In verse 9, and it'll sound very familiar to you. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That speaks of Jesus as he, his entry into Jerusalem, doesn't it? That's the prophecy here of the appearance of their Messiah. He, this, he is Zion's king of peace that is to come. That's the coming of Christ. As he came, he was born, and he lived upon this earth. You know, he's finally coming as king again, not only for them, but for all of us, king of kings and lord of lords, for every one of us. But let's look at this and see in Matthew 21, verse 5, if you care to look. Matthew uh, 21 and verse 5. And let's read verse 4 so we'll get the connection. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. What prophet are we talking about? The one we're just reading. Zechariah 9 verse 9. But let's go back to verse 1 and read the whole uh, story of it. It says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Someone said, well, he knew it was going to be there. You know, even if, it, if a, an animal had been tied previous, it doesn't mean that the owner wouldn't move them at some particular time. But he says, you're going to find one tied there. It's not as if they st- that one stayed tied there all the time. But even so, if it was a familiar scene, you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. I mean, you know, quite a response as well. Can you imagine some fellow saying, No, you're not going to take my colt here. You're not going to take, take these two donkeys, the mother and the colt. You're not going to take them away. Now look, it says, All this was done, verse 4 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, brought the ass and the colt, and put uh, on them their clothes. And they set him thereon. They placed him. Set. That means to be placed. They put Jesus up on the colt. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches of trees and strawed them in the way, and multitudes that went before and, and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They knew the prophet Zechariah, Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. If you read the other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, I believe it's chapter 11. Look in Mark 11. You're going to find a little bit different uh, presentation by Mark because he gives us... You know, Mark's Gospel gives you more vivid details of the same situation than Matthew and Luke. Remember that when you study Mark, he'll give you one little bit of insight. As you read Mark, you keep this in mind. He'll give you the vivid details of what the... Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have to say. So I always look for some little special 
thing that you'll find. And let's read it in, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. When they would come nigh to Jerusalem and to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, saith to them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye entered, be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. See what he adds? Loose him and bring him. Let's stop and there just a moment. Where old never man sat. Here you find, think of it for a moment. You find that this colt was just as submissive to the Lord as if he was fully broke and ready for someone to ride on his back. We find that when Jesus was on the stormy sea, he would say to the winds and the waves, Peace be still. And there was a great calm. The point I want to make is this, that all of creation is subject to the Lord's will but man. He's the rebellious one. Do you know that? Everything that he made becomes subject to him. And man has to be converted and convicted and converted in order to finally submit to the will of God. See, man is the rebellious creature. And I just wanted to point that out in passing. Notice it says, uh, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him to me. Verse 3, And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without uh, in a place where the two ways, two ways met. And they, they loose him. And, a cert, and certain of them that stood there said unto them, Now look, here you have them. What do ye loosing the colt? Remember he said that they would do that. Uh, and they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. So there, it was questioned, wasn't it? Matthew's Gospel doesn't te- tell us about it being questioned, but Luke's does. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. Now, notice the difference in these two stories. Both divinely inspired. Both telling the whole of what they knew to be the facts. Someone says, well, you see, the Bible is contradictory. No. God uses the individuality of every one of the gospel writers just as he used the individuality of those apostles when they wrote. Peter and and Paul and John, he used their individuality in there. He doesn't eliminate human individuality in bringing about divine inspiration. Remember, old Amos was a herdman of Tekoa, wasn't he? And a gather of sycamore fruit, a fruit, and so he used the roughness of this particular man that he called. Remember what Elijah was. Remember how he was described by one as being a man from the the wilderness. And in fact, in Second Kings chapter one, they said he is a hairy man. <laughs> Speaks of his uh, the way he looked to people. And John the Baptist came where out of the wilderness, didn't he? And his meat was locusts and wild honey. He had a leathern girdle about his loins. He was a rugged character. But when you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all told the gospel story as God gave them direction to do it so that there, there would be a complete, total picture of Jesus. Let me just try to give you an illustration of, of how it would be. Say that there were four of us out here at this little wire. And one standing over here by Alsop's store, one standing across the street by the Tasty Freeze used to be, and one up there a little further up Sutter's Drive, and another one down below toward the hospital. And there's an automobile accident. And I mean you have a real bad crash. And from your vantage point, 
you could describe what you see on this side of it. And from the other fellows on the other side. One up, up the street and one down the street. Well, I'm sure that everyone would have a different description of what happened to those cars in that crash. Because of all you could see would be that particular viewpoint that you have. Now, you'd all be describing the same accident. Now, of course, we're talking in the Scripture about divine inspiration, and yet we're talking about human uh, character coming out in the same divine inspired Word of God. So that none, not one contradicts another. Maybe in the front of it you see the... Where he just hit a telephone pole behind where this car knocked him into it. On the side, you might see how the door was on one side broken open. And on the other side, how the when the accident took place, how the whole side of the car was ripped off. But it all happened so fast and there's so much to describe that everyone would have a different viewpoint of it. And all would be telling the truth of what they saw. And all of the gospel writers are telling the truth of what they saw in Jesus. And what God wanted them to reveal to us of Christ. Remember, they were under divine inspiration. And you and I would be looking with human eye, wouldn't we? And describing describing from a human standpoint what we see. So isn't it a wonderful thing that God used the character and and the persons that He used to write the Scripture and didn't just erase them and make them like a robot and say everyone's going to just be mechanically moved to to say what they say. They were divinely inspired and they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write concerning the same truths about a wonderful person and each one had to have their input. And that's why we have the Scriptures, all the we call it the harmony of the Gospels. Have any of you ever had a little book that's called The Harmony of the Gospels by uh, Robertson, A.T. Robertson, I believe it is. If you don't have it, you ought to get it. It's A.T. A. Robertson, and it's, uh, it's about an uh, inch and a quarter, or maybe an inch and a half thick, and it's called The Harmony of the Gospels. And you start, and you have four columns, and each gospel is compared chronologically, side by side, as you read and study through there, and you'll find these little things that I pointed out, like when you put Mark's gospel beside these others concerning the entrance into Jerusalem, you'll find that he gives you these little added details. You'll find when you turn to John, it's a different story yet. Turn to John's Gospel. I may be taking too much time on this, but if you will, turn to the Gospel of John, and I believe it's chapter 12. Let's see if that's the same one. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, Let's begin reading. With verse 12. It says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet Him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when He had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written. Fear not, as it is written. Now notice. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy King cometh sitting on an ass's colt, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. You see, they didn't fully understand what was taking place, even though Zechariah had told about it. Just like in the Old Testament, we said that the prophets did not understand all that they wrote about Jesus. Remember, we showed you that in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and verse 10. It says, Of which salvation, 1 Peter 1 verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. The salvation that we have, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them, they had the Spirit of Christ, did signify when it, when it testified beforehand, what? The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. That's the New Testament. Apostles, which things the angels desire to look into. But you see, in verse... Uh, 10, it says that they searched diligently. They inquired and searched diligently. They prophesied of the grace that is to be brought unto us. They prophesied of the salvation that we would have through Christ's death. Isaiah said that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And he goes on to tell us that uh, of the things that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and so on. And think of all the things that Isaiah prophesied, and yet he searched diligently when this would happen, what manner of time. He knew it was going to happen because the Spirit of Christ was in him. But he inquired and searched diligently because they did not fully understand all that they said. I believe here at Zechariah, when we're talking about what he says in Zechariah 9 verse 9, that he's speaking of this and looking forward to it because it's the appearance of of Israel's Messiah that he's prophesying. But look at Zechariah 9, verse 9, as we follow it through now. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. They, he knew that this was going to happen. He was prophesying of it. And yet, I'm not sure that he fully understood all that he was writing or saying. He says, Thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly. And riding upon an ass, upon the colt, a, a colt, the foal of an ass. Isn't that a marvelous thing that God moved these men by His Holy Spirit to write down these wonderful truths? And yet, it, it just adds to me another thought that they knew that it had to be divinely inspired because if it was from their own understanding, they would have presented their own idea about it. They say, well, now, you know, I wonder when this is going to happen. You know, God told me to write this down, but there would be question marks and all kinds of things transpiring in what we read. But you don't find that. They just simply say, thus saith the Lord. And God says, this is what it is. And they accept it, whether they understand it or not. And by the way, you and I should accept it whether we understand it or not. It's God's word. And what he says is going to come to pass. First Kings 8. In verse 56, it says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto His people Israel, according to all, now look, according to all that He promised, there hath not failed one word of all His good promise, which He promised by the hand of Moses His servant. There hath not what? There hath not failed one word. You need to mark that. Of all that He promised. And that's a very wonderful scripture. I'll try to remember it better next time. Uh, anyway, in, in chapter 9 of Zechariah, follow this through now, in verse 10, and we'll have to close in just a moment. He says, 
And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He's talking about a time that peace will be the order of the day, and war and battle. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Look at that. And so he's talking about a time of future peace. And it says in the last part of the verse, And he shall speak peace unto the heathen, not only his people, but unto the heathen, unto the Gentiles. And his dominion, look at this, his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Of course, the river referred to in the Bible is usually the river Euphrates. And it's going to compass the whole earth, all around the east and to the west, until it comes back to the river Euphrates. And from sea to sea. So he's speaking of, of national, international dominion over the whole earth, And he's going to speak peace unto the heathen. That'll be a wonderful day, will it not? So we look forward to a time that that will happen. Now, verse 11. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. And we'll have to deal with that more thoroughly in our next lesson. But I want you to notice it's by the blood of the covenant that all of these things will be brought to pass. He not only has a covenant, blood covenant with Israel, but he has a blood covenant with you and I as Christians. This is my blood of the New Testament, Jesus said, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so there's a new covenant for all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, every one of us, the blood of his covenant that will be the guarantee of our salvation and our peace in that future time. But there's a lot more I want to say about verse 11 when we take it up in our next lesson because there's a lot of things here about the prisoners that need to be dealt with and the rendering double unto thee in verse 12 and so on and so forth.